Okay, so by now you could have got up page 828 and looked up Ephesians chapter 4 and we're going to start at verse 17. So I tell you this, insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to, as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour, for you are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up others in accordance to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ God forgave you. See if you can pick this song. Listen with your heart. Listen to your soul. Inside you'll find the answer, the place you need to go. Listen with your heart. Your heart will let you know, no matter where you are, the truth, truth is never far, just listen and your heart will lead you home. Does anyone know it? Oh, Paul Jensen. I don't know if I'd be admitting it. Yep. Brian Adams. No, not Brian Adams. Roxette. Roxette. <laughs> it's the second time I've heard Roxette mentioned today. That's weird. No. <laughs> it's, it's the song that the 2004 Australian Idol contestant winner had to sing. So I think it was Casey Donovan that year in 2004. But it actually captures something of what you hear all the time, this idea that you've got to look within, the answer lies within. You've got to look inside to find the right path to follow. It's not actually a new idea. One of the characters in, in Shakespeare's Hamlet says to his son, this above all, to thine own self, be true, which is a similar sort of message. Or in the 19th century, a guy called Ralph Waldo Emerson said, to be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else is the greatest accomplishment. It's not a new idea, but judging by the number of memes and tattoos that have this message today, it's become super popular. Last week, I talked about some of the modern virtues in our society, and this is probably one of them. Last week, we saw the virtue of absolute freedom to self-determination and we saw the virtue of, of tolerance 
And we also saw the virtue of not tolerating intolerance. Well, to those modern virtues, we could also probably add this virtue, the virtue of being true to yourself. But maybe we need to add slightly more to this even. The author Richard Bach apparently said, your only obligation in any lifetime is to be true to yourself. If he's right, then we don't just have the freedom to be true to ourselves, we've got the obligation to do it. And it's pretty common actually to hear people talk like this. Like when you're trying to figure out what you should do, you'll hear people say, well, you've got to be true to yourself. It's accepted as as common sense. And they're not just saying, be real and, and don't be fake. They're saying that you'll find the right path to take, the, the right action, by aligning it with what you want. And to not be true to myself is actually to repress myself. And repressing myself is always wrong. So I've heard people say things like this. I've heard people say, it's right for me to leave my marriage because I need to be true to myself. And I've, I've heard people even say to other people, it's right for you to leave your marriage because you need to be true to yourself. But this way of, of thinking has got some serious challenges because what happens when what's true for me goes against what you want? Like this. Now this cartoon makes a joke of that, but it's actually a serious problem. Now, usually we'd say, well, be true to yourself as long as it doesn't hurt someone else. But what if it doesn't hurt them? It's just causing them not to be true to themselves. What, what wins in that situation where there's two people being true to themselves with opposite ideas about what should happen? Or what if I want to leave my marriage because it's being true to me, but my wife wants to salvage the marriage that we've got because that's being true to her. Who wins in that situation? If what's right to do is found by being true to ourselves, surely we're going to run into all sorts of complex moral situations with no real solid answers. But apart from having serious moral challenges, being true to ourselves, apparently it doesn't necessarily make us happier either. I was reading in in the ABC News a little while ago about self-help books and according to a Danish professor, Svend Brinkman, who's a Danish professor of of psychology, they don't actually help us to be happy. Listen to what he says. He says, the self-help book promises to orient the individual towards something that is meaningful. The problem is that what is meaningful, according to the self-help industry, is always what is within the individual, so the person must look within themselves, listen to their inner voice, find meaning within. And the whole inward turn, Professor Brinkman argues, only makes us more unhappy. He says, so many studies have shown that meaning is found in our relationships, with others, with the world, with society, with nature, with something beyond ourselves. It seems that there's something wrong with this modern virtue of looking within to decide what's best for us, looking within to decide what's right and wrong, or looking within to find happiness. 
We need to look beyond ourselves. The letter to the Ephesians that we've been carefully following these last few weeks tells us this same thing. It tells us that we find meaning when we look beyond ourselves to God's overarching storyline for this world. And it tells us that our storyline can be joined into God's own storyline. And what we go on to see in this letter, from here on in, is that our calling now, to, our calling now is actually to be true to who we are, but not as we define ourselves. Not as we look within to discover ourselves, but as we look to God beyond ourselves, as we look to who He has made us to be. And this brings us to our first point today. So have a look at Ephesians 4 verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Now that we've been tied into God's storyline, we cannot live according to our old storyline. We used to walk the same paths as everyone else, but Paul's very clear here, we must not do that any longer. Paul says the way that we used to walk before coming to Jesus was directed by the way that we used to think. Our actions followed our thinking. But he says our thinking followed our hearts. Look at verse 18, where Paul describes the way God thinks about people who aren't interested in him. He says, they're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. See that? First comes a hard heart, which can only make us ignorant of God because prejudice and ignorance always go together. And being hard towards God and ignorant of Him, we're separated from Him. And being separated from the true source of life, we walk with a darkened understanding of what life is all about and what really matters. It goes like this, what my heart wants, my mind justifies, and my will chooses. So according to Paul, when we listen to our hearts, when we're being completely true to ourselves, what this looks like is verse 19. Having lost all sensitivity, that's sensitivity to God, they have given themselves over to sensuality, that's doing whatever pleases you, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed, we're never satisfied. The idea here is that we've given ourselves over to living for ourselves, doing whatever we think is going to satisfy us, but needing more and more because we actually can't get no satisfaction. So from our point of view, we're just trying to live. We're just trying to find meaning and to get the most out of life. We're being true to ourselves. We're just doing what makes us happy. And yes, happiness is hard to get hold of. So we're doing more and more of what we can to try and get hold of it. But from God's point of view, it looks completely different. We've abandoned him. We're not interested in his idea of right and wrong anymore. We've abandoned his plan for us. We've made life all about whatever's good for ourselves. And we pursue that even if it's offensive to God. 
and we pursue it even though it's futile to get satisfaction through it. We may be offended that God's offended by our need to be true to ourselves. We may be offended that God labels our way of thinking futile. We may label our sensitivities enlightened. But God thinks even this shows that we're out of touch. We're darkened in our understanding. And of course we can't see it. That's the point. And this brings us to our second point. When we came to Christ, we put off the old self and put on the new self and we have a new way of thinking. Have a look at at verse 20. Paul writes, That, however, that way of living, doing, doing whatever we want, that is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Christ Jesus. It's literally... It's not the, where it says is not the way of life you learned, it's literally that's not how you learned Christ. When I became a Christian, I learned about Jesus. I heard a true story and I was taught what it meant. And if you're a Christian, then you learned this story too. You know it. It's the story about God's chosen king, who despite being the king of the entire universe, is interested in me even though I was just interested in myself. And even though really I was a rebel against this king, he died in my place to end that rebellion. And he did it to make me a part of a a new humanity that he now rules, God's family, the church, a people who wait for this king to return to judge his world and to transform this world. That's the story we learned But Paul doesn't mean here that we just learned about it or that we just learned about Christ. We learned Christ. He means we learned it by joining it. Look at verse 22, where Paul says what this story teaches us. You were taught with regard to the former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, And to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. When I came to know Jesus, I learned that I left my old self behind. That's what happened as I came to Jesus. I learned a new way of thinking. And I learned that I'm a new person, created to be like God. When we come to Christ, it's like learning that that the stars don't actually go round us or the sun doesn't actually cycle around us. It's like learning that we cycle around the sun and the stars stay still and and we do the turning, the moving. When we come to Jesus, instead of thinking that what we want matters most, now we orbit in a new path around God and who He wants us to be. And this brings us to our third point. Our new way of thinking means we leave behind what belongs to the old self and we walk in what belongs to the new self. It's like we saw in the all-ages spot. We put off the clothes that go with our old self and we put on the clothes that go with our new self. It makes me think of a game of sport um, where 
in summer, you've been running around and you get disgustingly sweaty, covered in mud. This is gross, but just humour me for a second. Someone's had a blood nose out on the field and it's kind of all over you. And you go into the, the, the change rooms afterwards and you have a shower. Please tell me that there is no one, not even a teenage guy here, who would put on the old shirt after that shower. It's like the shower makes you a new person. You don't go back to the old shirt. You put on new clothes in that situation. Well, Paul now runs through some examples of, for us of what we're to put off because we've been made new and what we're to put on. And this is not just a, a list of rules, by the way, because each time Paul explains why we're to do this. So look at the, the first example in verse 25. He says, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. See that? We've put off falsehood. We put on speaking truthfully. And the reason why? is because we are all members of one body. Do you see what this means? It means that Paul's still got the church in view here. He doesn't suddenly start just speaking to individuals. I've got to admit, every time I'd read this before, that's the way I thought about it. That it's just sort of, okay, now as an individual, what, what have I got to do? This is talking to individuals in community. The Christian life has got to be lived amongst God's family. We're not called to an internal walk with Jesus. We're called to a walk with Jesus that's lived in the mess of the real world alongside real brothers and sisters in Christ. People that we sometimes feel tempted to lie to, but we don't, because that's not who we are anymore. We've been permanently bonded together as God's family, the one body. At home, we often say, we're a family who loves the truth. At those times when I'm saying that, I often feel a bit like a liar myself, because it's usually when, when someone's lying, one of the, the kids, not Kathy, and, um, and so I'm, I'm sort of trying to convince us, we're a family who loves the truth. And it, it feels a bit like I'm lying, because in that moment, it doesn't seem like we're a family who loves the truth at all. And one of the, whoever's lying is, is lying for short-term gain because they don't want to get in trouble. But the long-term result, if we're not a family who loves the truth, is that we won't trust each other. I remember a friend telling me how he learnt this. He loves just talking to people. He loves chatting to people. And when he was first married, he'd often be late home because he got caught up chatting. And so that his wife wouldn't get annoyed, he'd make up some story to keep the peace. It seemed harmless to him to say, sorry, honey, the train was running late, rather than to say, sorry, honey, I, I put my friends at work before you. But lying for short-term gain does enormous damage. Because when she finally figured out what he was doing, it destroyed her ability to trust him. How could she trust that when he says... I love you, he wasn't just doing that too for short-term gain. And the principle is the same here. If we don't speak the truth to each other, we won't trust each other. And the long-term result is that we'll hold back from each other to protect ourselves. We're a family 
called to always speak the truth. All the time, not just here, but especially here to each other. So are we actually tempted to lie to each other? Well, let me put it another way. Are we ever tempted to be fake with each other? I think this would be one of our greatest dangers. For some reason, it's very easy to fall into this way of thinking that we've got to present ourselves to each other as if we've got it all together. And a Christian version of this could be that on a Sunday, our marriage looks good, our kids behave well, we look happy and godly and like we've got it all together. When the truth is on Monday, it could well be that our marriage is on the rocks, our relationship with our kids is under enormous pressure and we're struggling to live for God and we're wondering if it's even all worth it. We're not called to be an Instagram church where everything appears rosy and and imposed and carefully filtered. Our beauty is that we're called to truth. We're called to be fallen people struggling to honour God in real marriages, with real kids, if we have them. Truth is far more God-honouring than faking it on a Sunday. We're not here to impress each other. We're bound together permanently by a bond that can't be broken, so we don't need to bother impressing each other. We're God's family. We're members of the one body. If we run with the body metaphor for a bit, imagine if your legs were always trying to look good to the other leg. You know, one of your legs is actually feeling pretty bad from the jog that you went on yesterday, but it's not going to let it on to the other leg. And so instead of letting the other leg take some of the weight and help out, it soldiers on and does itself damage. Well, when we're fake with each other, we rob each other of the chance to help and we can do ourselves damage pretending that everything's fine. Now, having said that, I don't think it means that we should dump on each other every week. You know, someone says, how are you going during the get-a spot? And so I say, well, my marriage sucks, my kids are brats, I haven't read my Bible in a year and I think my mother-in-law might be the devil. I'm Stephen, by the way. What was your name? I don't think that's what it means. Being truthful with, with each other might mean saying to some people, I'm okay, people we don't know very well, but opening up a whole lot more to a few people. And I think community groups are a particularly powerful place for that though we've still got to commit to be real with each other, even in those smaller groups, and honest about our struggles. The principle is, we're a family of truth. Our calling is is to love truth wherever we find it in this world, even when it hurts. Outside of here, in the rest of life, but especially here. It's who we are. We're a family that loves truth. The next thing that we put off is sinning in anger. So look at verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. See that? We've, We've put off sinning in anger and we've put on righteous action. So we're not to nurse anger, we're to deal with it. And the reason why we don't want to give the devil a foothold. 
There are two dangers when we're angry. One is that it's very easy to overreact and the other is that it's very easy to underreact and let the wrong behaviour from the, from the other person just go unaddressed and let our anger go unaddressed too. We're not to take either of those paths. We're to talk to each other when we're angry. We're called to be peacemakers, not peace breakers or peace fakers. You know, peace breakers, they damage the relationship by, by yelling or slandering people. Peace fakers damage the relationship by bottling it up, saying nothing and avoiding people. Sometimes they just slip away from us one Sunday and never come back. If someone has done the wrong thing and then we do nothing, we're not doing them any favours. We're doing the devil a favour. They'll just keep on doing the wrong thing with nobody pointing it out and we'll just keep holding on to our anger. Like I said the other week, we're not called to be a nice family. We're called to love God and love each other and we can't afford to muck around like this is a game. Our relationships matter. It's our job when we've been wronged to deal with it and when we're confronted... It's our job to hear that person out. Conflict, in the end, it's not a bad thing. It's actually an opportunity for growth. I was just remembering one of my uh, close friends where I nearly broke the friendship completely by something really stupid I did, which I'm not going to tell you, and there's at least a couple of other people who know what that is out there, and you're not going to tell anyone either. (laughs) But she forgave me, and in the end, our relationship was so much stronger because of it. Conflict is an opportunity. I was talking to uh, a teenager the other day from a family with lots of boys and I asked him, so who's rebellious in your family? And he said, no one. I couldn't believe it, I was asking him all about it. But he said that if someone's out of line in their family, one of the brothers puts them in a headlock and sets them straight. (laughs) I thought, that's brilliant. They're half hugging each other, half roughing each other up. It's what family does and it's what we're called to do. We lovingly pull each other into line. We're not pretenders or cowards, we're family. We're people who deal with our anger. The next thing we've put off, we see in verse 28. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. See that? We've put off stealing, we've put on working hard and the reason why is so so that we can share with those who are in need. We don't have time today to explore some of these last ones in as much detail, except notice this in that. Notice the power of Jesus, that he can take a thief and turn him around so completely that he wants to work so that he can share. It's unbelievable. The next thing we see that we've put off is in verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. 
See what we've put off? We've put off speaking that's unwholesome. And we've put on a way of speaking that benefits people. And the reason why is we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has called us to be righteous, to be holy people. And the Holy Spirit has united us together. So when we speak to someone in a way that damages them, we don't just hurt them, we hurt the Holy Spirit. What we say to each other matters. And to say something that encourages people to go against what God wants for them, or to say something that tears them down, that grieves the Holy Spirit. We've given up being lazy or cutting with our words. We are people who speak for the benefit of others. Which, by the way, means that we need to be people who listen as well. Because otherwise, how will we know what people need to hear if we're not listening? Sometimes people just need you to show that you're listening by what you say. Sometimes people need an encouraging word. Sometimes people need a gentle rebuke. Sometimes what people need is just meaningless banter, just being there with them. But words that are designed to hurt or embarrass or belittle or mock or patronise or flatter or deceive, words where we boast or justify our sinful behaviour or slander others or whinge or demonstrate our brilliance, they don't help anyone. They just grieve the Holy Spirit. The final example we've put off, we see in verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. I'm I'm sort of thinking it seems impossible to me to imagine a church where there's this kind of stuff, bitterness, rage, anger brawling, imagine it, slander, along with every form of malice. You know, to me it sounds worse than a a Port Crow showdown. (laughs) But it's not just the list as a whole that we're to put off. It's each of the items that are on that list as well. So bitterness, being sour toward someone here, so that I don't even like to be around them. I avoid them. I shudder when I have to talk with them. That way of thinking has got no place here. Our calling instead is to be kind and compassionate to one another. Our calling is to forgive each other, just like how in Christ, God has forgiven us. That's a really high calling. We're called to be like God. We're called to walk in the footsteps of Jesus who died to bring people to God and to bring people to each other. It's a a really high calling, but it's a beautiful calling. We've put off the old self. We've put on the new self. And now our calling is to walk true to who we are. So in one way, we could say that our calling is to be true to self. But this means something completely different to the virtue that we saw at the beginning, doesn't it? We don't look within to be true to self. We look to Jesus and we follow in his footsteps. 
the self that we're to be true to is the self that God has made us to be. Being true to ourselves now means we give ourselves to one another, just like Christ gave himself for us. Have you noticed these last few weeks, as we've been talking about the church, as we've been seeing it here in Ephesians, that it's not the weak, boring thing that we're sometimes told that it is? It's subversive. It's countercultural. It's radical. And it's all about relationships. It's created by God's overarching storyline, transforming this world one storyline at a time as we learn of Christ who died for us, as we give up our old storyline and start walking in His new one. And to the world, God's storyline might sound weak. Our God on a cross might seem weak. And God's strategy to build a new humanity in the church as they hear this story of this Christ, that may look weak. But we've come to see that it's a story that has the power to change individuals radically. The power to create loving communities. The power to transform the world. It has the power to last into the world to come and for all eternity. We've got to take our place in this story. We've got to take our place in this family. It's it's meaningless to think that we can be here once a month and really be all these things that that we've seen today. Now, most of us know that. But even if we're here every week, it, it doesn't mean that we automatically live up to our calling. We've still got to give ourselves to each other because Christ has bonded us together permanently to be one body, a family. This is what God's doing in the world now. It's who we're called to be. Walking in this path is being true to who we are. And it's beautiful. Let's pray. Lord, we need you to be at work in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts by your Holy Spirit to be able to see the church your way. It's not a building or an organisation or what happens every Sunday only at 10am. Lord, give us the eyes to see that it's, it's a family, people gathered around you, at peace with you and at peace with each other. Lord, help us to walk in this new path that you've called out for us. Lord, help us to look to you to see how we're to be true to who you've made us to be. And Lord, help us to see the beauty of it. And when it's hard, Lord, when we're tempted to be fake or to speak dishonestly, when we're angered by other people, whether rightly or wrongly, Lord, at those times especially, pour out your Holy Spirit on us and cause us to walk your way like Jesus giving up, living for ourselves and living for you, loving people like he loved. Lord, it's a a really high calling, but it's a beautiful one and we thank you for it. Amen.